0: We're going to finish up taking our walk through the book of 2 Corinthians in our walk through the New Testament uh, series. We started uh, looking at 2 Corinthians uh, several weeks ago in what was to be a two Sunday evening time together. And, uh, and then Sunday evenings got busy with some other things. The, the previous uh, uh, time we spent looking at 2 Corinthians, we laid a little bit of the background story uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians have quite an involved background story. And so we took one Sunday evening uh, to to refresh our memories on what had happened in the background behind this church at Corinth. We went through the book of Acts, scanned through the book of Acts, Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey, saw how he had established churches in the Gentile world. He was the apostle that God handpicked to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the gospel had spread through Israel, but now the Apostle Paul has taken it to the Gentile world, and of course he went on his first missionary journey to what is now the country of Turkey. Second missionary journey was primarily in northern Greece, the northern Grecian Peninsula, over into the edge of Europe, and then his third missionary journey was primarily in the southern part of the Grecian Peninsula. Really, the second and third missionary journey was kind of a a combination of those. We saw that that as the Apostle Paul evangelized and planted churches, that he planted two strategic churches that were on a east-west merchant route that reached from Europe to Asia. It was a, uh, a very uh, important trade route where cargo, ships, merchantmen traveled east and west between Asia and Europe. And God used the Apostle Paul to plant a strategic church in two locations on that trade route. One in Ephesus in Turkey and one in Corinth in the Grecian Peninsula. And it, I can just imagine knowing missionaries uh, over the years, talking to missionaries, hearing about their strategies and their plans and, and how they take so so much to heart the work of World evangelism and how they're going to make a difference in the part of the world God had called them to. I, I cannot help but think that the Apostle Paul dreamed about these two strategically planted churches on this massive east-west a trade route. And the power uh, of those churches in spreading the gospel through the, the spread of merchants and the spread of people as they went back and forth. And we do know that happened from the church at Ephesus. Churches, the gospel went up the Lycus River Valley. Churches were planted in Colossus and in Laodicea. And, uh, and, and so the, the gospel was spreading on this trade route. And then Satan put all of his big artillery on the ministry of those two churches. And we saw how that that Paul went into a deep time of of persecution and turmoil and trauma. He feared that he was going to lose his life. He was expecting to die every day, he said. And it was all revolving around these two churches of Ephesus and the church in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul was trying to get to Corinth, because they had deep problems. It was a seaport town with all of the immorality and problems of an ancient seaport town. And, and the church had been planted, but the world was encroaching on the church. It had deep problems. And Paul was trying to get there to help them. And, but he was in Ephesus trying to get that church stabilized. And, and then everything broke loose. And he was attacked in Ephesus A mob broke out. He had to escape the city of Ephesus. He said that he was facing death every day. By the time he got out of Ephesus and went up to the northern Grecian peninsula and kind of stopped there in Philippi, uh, he was, uh, we, we might use the word depressed, discouraged. When we read the language, the words that he used to describe his state of mind and his state of physical, I mean, he was sick. Uh, and, and he was just in a horrible, dark hour of his life. And it was at that dark hour at the, village, at the city of Philippi that he wrote the book of Second Corinthians. It is the most um, personal of all of the letters that God used the Apostle Paul to write. In the book of Second Corinthians, he talked more about his problems, his state of mind, his physical challenges his oppositions. He just kind of opened his heart to this church at Corinth. Now, mind you, Corinth was the second strategic church and it was going through its share of problems as the Ephesus church was. So he was between going from one of these strategic churches to the other. He is discouraged. He's sick. He's facing death every day. And he writes to the church at Corinth a second letter bearing his heart to them. Telling about the but but the challenges of his ministry and his life, uh, opening his heart so the members of that church can see the real Apostle Paul and what it has cost him to be a missionary. What's cost what it's cost him to be a servant of God, and and this book of Second Corinthians was written to pour out his heart to the church at Corinth, and so. Uh, this, this is a, a very personal letter, and in this letter, the Apostle Paul talks about some things. I want to just step through 2 Corinthians and read some of the highlights of 2 Corinthians for just a few moments so that you can catch the, 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 some of the, the major things that the Apostle Paul shared from his heart to this church at Corinth. And you can see from your little uh, handout that you received a moment ago, there are three parts uh, to this book of 2 Corinthians, uh, one part focuses on his life ministry. He opens up his heart and says, this is what my life has been about. The second part gravitated toward the friends that he had at Corinth. People that had, had, um, were not in the thick of all the problems. They've recovered from the problems. They're not an anti-Paul. They're not attacking Paul. And he opens up his heart and says, this is what I would really like. To see God do in your lives. And then in the final part of the letter, he addresses the critics that he had in Corinth, those who were trying to convince everyone that Paul is a lousy preacher, he has no credibility, he has nothing to offer you, and he preaches false things and you shouldn't listen to him. And so the final part of the letter, Paul, opens his heart to his critics and has some things to say to them. So let's just step through and catch a, a little bit of the highlights of Second Corinthians uh, that can uh, embellish your own personal study of the Word of God and help you better understand this deep dark hour of the Apostle Paul. Let's focus for a few moments about his ministry. Uh, what? is my ministry. And really chapters 1 through 5 go into his ministry. You can see on your little worksheet that Paul's ministry had had been severely criticized and so he lays out the highlights. This is what my life as a missionary is all about. And you'll see two things, the his suffering and the gospel. That's what his life was all about what he had suffered for the cause of Christ and how he handled that suffering, how he viewed that suffering, his perspective on suffering, and then the power of the gospel that he had preached in Corinth as well as in every other place that he had gone. So let's, let's zero in on how he viewed the sufferings of his life. In chapter 1 in verse number 3, He addressed the church and said, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. First thing that grabs me is the Apostle Paul knew that God was at work in his tribulation, comforting him, showing mercy to him. How did he view being at the point of death every day? People criticizing him and turning their back on him. Lies and innuendos being taught about him. Mobs trying to kill him. How did he view the sufferings of his life? He viewed the sufferings of his life as God training him. God intervened in his life. God is the Father of all mercy. I have learned by experience of suffering that my God is a merciful God. And my God has actively come to my side. That word comfort, interesting word, come fort, come to my side to be a fortress of strength. My God is the God of comfort in my tribulation. He comes to me where I am and brings with him a fortress of strength to buoy me up. Paul viewed trials and tribulations and suffering as the opportunity to grow for God to train him in his Tribulations, And then he immediately turned that towards the people that he was writing to in Corinth. He said in verse number four, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Paul saw suffering as an opportunity for God to train him so he could minister to others. And whenever you're in tribulation... Whenever you have a trial or a trauma in your life, the person you most need is a Christian who has gone through what you're going through, who have walked down those steps ahead of you, who have also lost a spouse, who have lost a child, who has found out they have cancer, who has has walked into work thinking all was well to walk home unemployed, the, the, the person you need when you're in trial is not someone who glibly says, yeah, I know how you feel. When they've never gone one step down the road you're walking on, what you need is someone who knows how you feel. Because they've been there. They've suffered that. They've endured that. And they learned by experience that God is a father of mercy, a God of comfort in tribulation. So Paul recognized his sufferings enabled him to minister to others. He said, look at what's going on. And he went on in this chapter talking about all the things that he had suffered. He said in verse eight, we would not brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. And he began to list the problems, his near death experiences, the trauma of his life. He wanted them to know that if they're suffering, he's been in their shoes. He knows what they're going through, and God proved himself to be real in his tribulations. And so he not only was trained by tribulation, but he was enabled to minister to others when they went through tribulation. And then I love how he turned it one more time in verse number 8 through 11, but let me just jump down to verse number 11. He said in verse number 11, ye also helping... Together by prayer for us. Paul saw suffering as giving his suffering, his tribulations, as giving other people the opportunity to help him in his trial by praying. Do you realize that when you pray for somebody in tribulation, you have become a soulmate with them? You have become a helper to them. When you pray for another person who's gone through agonizing situations, you have entered into their suffering and you have helped them. And so Paul saw suffering as an opportunity for other people to help him through what he was going through. And so don't be afraid to share with people your burdens. Don't be afraid to share with Christian friends what you're going through because they will help you. How will they help you? They'll get on their knees and pray for you. And prayer's real. Prayer's powerful. Prayer really does help. Prayer really makes a difference. And so Paul viewed suffering as a part of his ministry. The horrendous suffering trained him, enabled him to minister to others in a meaningful way, and enabled them to help him by engaging in prayer for him. We learn a lot in the first couple of chapters of 2 Corinthians about the in workings of trial and tribulation in our lives and what God does with those trials and tribulations and the difference the impact it makes in our relationships and ministries but that's not all that Paul's ministry was about he viewed suffering as a ministry but that wasn't his main ministry his main ministry was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ where he went wherever he went Wherever he evangelized and planted churches, he saw his ministry as a gospel preaching ministry. That's why God sent him on his mission. Now, you'll see a number of bullet points, just some tidbits that I have learned and observed reading through the the second Corinthians, where Paul talks about the ministry of the gospel. What is the ministry of the gospel? Well, in chapter three, verses one to three, Paul makes it clear that the gospel really does change lives. He said to the members at the church at Corinth, people that he had evangelized, he went there and he preached the gospel. He was the first one to preach the gospel in Corinth. And as a result of that, souls got saved. But they didn't just get saved from eternal hell. God changed their lives. And he talks about that in the beginning of chapter 3. He said of the people that had gotten saved in verse number 2, he said, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You see, Paul's critics has accused him of being worthless, of preaching a false gospel and accomplishing nothing. And Paul wrote to the members of the church and he said, Your life is my credibility. What God has done in you has made you an epistle, just like a book of the Bible. But it's not written on a piece of paper. It's written in the heart of people. People whose lives are changed. Why do you say their lives are changed? He said in verse number 3, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, mentored to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. He's referring back to the Mosaic law written on tables of stone. Because Paul's critics were Judaizers who were trying to get people to live under the Mosaic law to either get saved or to maintain their salvation. Paul said, it's not the, Mosa- it's not the Ten Commandments written on stone. You are the evidence of the power of the gospel. The, the commands written on tables of stone say, don't do this and do this and don't do this and do this. That's not where it's at. It is in your life, the change in your life, that you're living according to the reality of God in his character. Because God has changed you and you are the credibility of who I am. Uh, he said in verse number six, God hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. This new gospel message that is not the Mosaic law that simply got your attention and made you guilty as a sinner on your way to hell. But the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms lives and makes you an example that the gospel I preached was effective. You see, the gospel really does change lives. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul used the word glorious. Look in chapter 4 and look in verse number 3. If our gospel be hid... It is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. Paul said that the gospel is glorious. He described it in a little bit uh, in verse number six as as being a light to give light, a light of the Knowledge of the glory of God. He said the gospel is a glorious, light-giving, truth-imparting message that speaks of the glorious nature of the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is glorious. However, God puts the gospel, this glorious, light-bearing gospel, He puts it in clay pots. He said in verse number 7, "...but we have this treasure in earthen vessels." Earthen vessels are just old clay pots. Uh, It it was those who have studied the culture of that day and the particular reference here, the particular term of earthen vessels spoke of a uh, of of a pot made out of clay, made out of dirt that was used in the absence of indoor plumbing. It was used to remove the refuse from the house as a result of, of of just our life. And so the refuse from our bodies were put in clay pots. This is not the best fine china you use in your kitchen. This is an old, bottom-of-the-line, most um, uh, unglorious purpose clay pot. And the Apostle Paul contrasted the glorious message with the container that carries the message. You are the clay pot. You are the earthen vessel. God took the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and put it inside clay pots to go out and tell the world the glorious message of Jesus Christ. And he explained why. He said in that same verse, in verse number seven, that the excellency of the power may may be of God and not of us. If God took the glorious message and put it in a glorious container, the glorious container could take some of the credit for the glorious message when it is received. But God takes the glorious message and puts it in a clay pot so the clay pot can't rob the message of any of its glory. The glory is all in Jesus Christ, His death on Calvary, His resurrection from the grave, the glory is all in the love and mercy of our God saving us from our sin, but He puts it in us to go out and tell everyone in northern Virginia the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He delivers the gospel through clay pots. The gospel changes perspective if you were to one of the the, the the passages that are often memorized and, and meditated on is the end of chapter four and how this glorious gospel that changes lives leaves people with a different perspective on life without Christ. A person's perspective on life is here and now. What can I get? What can I enjoy? What can I get for myself? Everything's here and now the gospel changes one's perspective. And this chapter ends by talking about how that, that, uh, uh, though our outward man perish, the inward man is renewed. Notice the contrast. The outward man that lives in this world versus the inward man that is eternal, that lives forever. He said the the, uh, the, the the sufferings we go through, the tribulations, are a light affliction, which is but for a moment. And then he contrasts it. A light affliction. Paul is suffering, about to be killed every day. He's facing death every day. And he called that just a light affliction. I mean, it's no big deal. You're just going to kill me. And he contrasted that light affliction with the eternal weight. The weight. Light weight. The light affliction of being killed to the weight of living with God forever in heaven. He contrasted the moment of suffering to the eternal, the Everlasting, eternal weight of glory. I may suffer for a moment, but I'm going to enjoy my God forever and ever. He contrasted what I can see with what I can't see. And he said, what I can see is temporary. It's temporal. It just lasts for a little time and it's gone. But what I can't see Heaven is eternal and lasts forever. You'll notice when you, when you study and meditate on this, the end of this chapter, the result of the gospel is that it changes our perspective on life. And the present doesn't mean as much as it used to mean. And the suffering isn't as bad as it used to have Because my focus is on eternity with God, enjoying the blessings of heaven forever. And my whole focus in life changes. As a result of the gospel, the gospel, because of that, prepares us for the Bema chapter five. The first half of the chapter talks about how this gospel uh, focuses us on when we get to heaven. And so he said in verse number eight, chapter five, verse eight, he said, we're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor whether we're present on this earth or we're absent from this earth, we may be accepted. The most important thing is that when I do get to God, my life is counted for him. He said, wherefore we labor to be accepted, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the word Bema. It's that, it's that place of accountability. And we're all going to stand as Christian people, at the Bema Seat of Christ. And the gospel prepares us for that Bema Seat so that we can live our lives for that which counts for eternity and and so that we look good when we stand before Jesus Christ to give an account. And then the chapter ends by proclaiming that the gospel is all about reconciling enemies. I mean, these are deep doctrinal truths. These are deep, weighty matters. And they just kind of flow out of Paul's expression, his explanation. This is what my life is about. It's about the gospel of Christ. The gospel that changes lives. The gospel that is glorious. That portrays the glory of Jesus Christ. It's just in a clay pot. I I ain't much. But I've got a glorious message inside of me. And that message has changed my perspective on life. And gotten me ready to meet my God one day. And it's all about reconciliation, taking enemies and making them friends, reaching up with one hand and getting a hold of the hand of God and reaching out with another hand to get the hand of a sinner on his way to hell and bringing them together with the gospel of Jesus Christ and reconciling enemies. And the last half of chapter five talks about how the gospel is all about reconciling enemies. That's how I got saved and that's what my ministry is A ministry of reconciling others to Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about his ministry in chapters 1 through 5. A ministry of suffering and a ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With great weighty passages to meditate on, to memorize, and to read and study to understand the heart of this apostle. Let me quickly just show you that he turned from his own ministry to the people that are his friends. What do I desire to see in my friends that are members of the church at Corinth? As he writes from afar in chapter six through nine, he focuses on the church family and what he wants to see God do in their life. Let me show you what he wants to see God do. Chapter six, verse number one. He said, we then as workers together with him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. The word vain is an interesting word. It's used uh, a lot in the New Testament, and it always uh, packs a punch of meaning. The the word vain just means something didn't fulfill its purpose. It just didn't accomplish what it was intended to accomplish. I I mean, this thing was prepared, and, and everything was invested in this thing, and then at the end of the day, when it was all finished, it flubbed and didn't do what I designed it to do. That's vain. That's what it means to be vain. What Paul wants, his heart's desire for the members of the church at Corinth is that they do not receive God's grace that changed their lives and not fulfill the purpose for which God saved them. He wants them to live out the purpose of God in their lives. And to Paul, the greatest failure is when someone gets saved and goes to heaven but does nothing for God during their time on earth. When they get saved and they're delivered from the consequences of their sin, but their lives do not accomplish the purpose for which God saved them. That, to Paul, is an utter uh, terrible thing. And so he expresses his heart to the members of the church. He wants them to live out God's purpose for their lives. There's a second thing on the backside of the little uh, worksheet. He wants them to care for him. Paul is a personable person. He doesn't like it when people don't like him. He has a hard time when he realizes someone doesn't like him. That bothers him. And so he writes to them in chapter 6 and verse number 11. Again, just catching the little nuggets. In verse number eleven. Oh, ye Corinthians, our mouth is opened unto you, our heart is enlarged. Paul says to these members, and he's had some, really, some real problems with this church. They've gotten some of them straightened out now. And he's writing to them, and he says to them, My mouth is open to you and my heart is enlarged. I love you. I care for you. But notice the last four words in verse 13. Be ye also enlarged. Would you love me in response to my love for you? I care about you and I want you to care about me. My heart is enlarged towards you, and I want your heart to be enlarged toward me. Paul, very personable individual who so wants these people to have a genuine care for him, he really cares about people. And then there's a third thing he expresses in the last half of chapter 6. Uh, Paul is very aware that these people living in Corinth, if you study the Corinthian culture, if you go there and visit and see the Acropolis and you study what the Acropolis was and what, what happened because of the Acropolis and the impact that it had on this church family, the members of the church, when, when you really understand the the Horrors of the Corinthian culture. It, you know, as bad as Western culture has become in a moral and an immoral sense, we don't hold a candle to the Corinthian culture. It, it was far more degraded than what Western culture has become. And the Apostle Paul writes to them, and one of the things he expresses to them is he wants them to separate from the activities of Satan in their community. He said to them in chapter number 6 and in verse number 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He said, what fellowship, what possible fellowship can exist between righteousness and unrighteousness? What do we have in common between light and darkness? How can Christ and Belial, a name for Satan, how can Christ and Belial have concord together? How can he that believeth have a part with a person who blasphemes God, an infidel who disbelieves in God. How, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idol worship? He says, he says, listen, I want you to come out from the culture you're living in. Verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. He's quoting God, saying... God says to the members of the Corinthian church, separate from the immorality that pervades your culture. Come out. Be separate so that I, God, can be a father to you and you can be sons and daughters to me. So chapter 7, verse 1, he says... Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul says he is desire, his heart cry to his friends in the church at Corinth is live a holy life. Don't be overcome by your culture. Live a holy and a godly life and separate from the sin that pervades your culture. That was one of the Things that were on Paul's heart. And then number four, he wanted them to make room for him. He wanted to come and see him. He said in verse number two of chapter seven, chapter seven, verse two, receive us. We've wronged no man. We've corrupted no man. I have not been against you. I have not hurt you. I have not tried to to destroy you. Please, would you receive me into your lives? Again, kind of reflecting back on that. My heart is enlarged toward you. I want your heart to be enlarged toward me. I want you to receive me. Make room for me in your lives. And then one, one further thing that, that really catches the attention, uh, Bradley Edmondson spoke on it last uh, Tuesday night, and it's chapters 8 and 9, two uh, detailed chapters revolving around Paul's desire for the members at the church at Corinth to have a meaningful role in the lives of people in other towns. It's the chapters on giving to meet the needs of the poor saints back in Jerusalem. And it culminates, I'll let it culminate, at the end of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 24. He said, Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. He he knew that the way they could prove how much they love other Christians is to give of their own resources to meet the needs of other Christians in other places. Paul really wanted them to. To care for other people living outside their own city. He wanted them to be mindful of needs in other places. And so he appealed to them to show the proof of their love by caring in practical, meaningful ways for other people. Now that brings us to the final part. Of the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul focused on his own ministry of suffering in the gospel. He focused on his heart's desire for the membership of the church that he had planted. And then in the last uh, four chapters, chapters 10 to 13, the apostle Paul has something to say to his critics. He said, now nah, he's going to really come down on them. He's going to let them have it. These guys that have caused him all this grief, and they're trying to cause division in the church at Corinth, trying to cause a split in the church by ridiculing the Apostle Paul, his doctrine, his mannerisms, his physical appearance, everything about him. He's going to really come down on his critics. So what does he say about his critics? Well, look in verse chapter 11, pulling out just again some of the highlights. Chapter 11, verse 1. Paul said, would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. He said, would you let me say something that, maybe I'm foolish for saying it. I'm jealous over you. You critics that have tried to destroy me. You critics that have lied about me. You critics that have tried to split the church away from me. You critics that have had all this to say about me. Would you just listen to me a little bit? I am jealous over you. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. One of the most beautiful pictures of evangelism. Of soul winning. Paul said, I feel like I'm Cupid. And and, and you're somebody that I reached up and got the hand of God, reached out and got your hand, and I was matchmaker. Matchmaker, make me a match. And I got you engaged to Jesus Christ. He said, will you marry me? You said, yes, I will. And you are engaged to Jesus Christ. I feel like I'm the matchmaker, the soul winner, the one who took the gospel and brought You and God together in a promise of holy matrimony. Now, he said, my my goal now during your engagement is to make sure that when the wedding day comes, that you haven't gone out and cheated on your engaged partner. I want when the wedding day comes for you to be presented to Jesus Christ as a chaste virgin. The one getting saved, pictured as the bride, Jesus Christ presented as the groom. When you are brought to the groom on the wedding day, I want you to be a chaste virgin. And everything that I've done, everything that I've preached, everything that I've longed for has been because I'm jealous over your sanctity. I'm jealous over your engagement to Christ. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Verse 3, But I fear lest by any means as the Satan beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And then he indicated that these critics had preached, for if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received from my preaching, or another gospel, which I didn't preach, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Paul is jealous. He wants what started to be completed at a beautiful wedding ceremony with a groom, Jesus Christ, and a chaste virgin, the critic ...that is causing him all this grief. Paul cares about his critics. He cares enough to appeal to them from a jealous heart that wants the best for them... ...because they will receive the best when they come to Jesus Christ on that wedding day. There's a second thing he wanted to say to his critics. In chapter 11, in the latter part of the chapter, in verses 23 to 28... The Apostle Paul listed what it had cost him to preach Jesus and the gospel to these critics that are now trying to destroy him. He said to them, he said in verse number 23, are they ministers of Christ? Speaking of his critics, I speak as a fool. I'm more. And then he listed what it had cost him to be a missionary in labor's "...more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, of the Jews five times received by forty stripes, save one, thrice beaten, uh, uh, with rods once stoned, thrice shipwrecked, a day in the, uh, in, in the deep, in journeyings, uh, in perils, in robbers, uh, heathen, perils in the wilderness, in the city, in the seas." perils among false brethren, all weariness, painfulness, painful as watchings, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, nakedness. And if that wasn't enough, the care of all you churches that I've planted and what's happening in your church life and what's happening to the memberships of your churches and what the preachers in those churches are preaching and my care of every church I've planted, Paul said, in other words, if I could sum it up in a modern vernacular, Paul said, I've left it all on the field. I've left it all on the field. I did my best. I gave my all. I, I did everything that I could for your benefit. I care about you and I left it all on the field that you might have everything that will be a blessing in your life when you stand before Jesus Christ at the bema seat and give an account for your life. Paul said, I left it all on the field for you. And then in chapter 12... He said, and, and he talked about that thorn in the flesh, and there's, there's a lot of study and debate. One of the men who preached at the men's prayer advance, just recently did a, a, just an amazing exposition of that portion of chapter number 12 and, uh, and, and built the case for the thorn in the flesh not being an eye disease or a physical ailment, but the thorn in the flesh were the very critics that were criticizing and hurting him. Thorns in his flesh were people, That he had a hard time with. And he saw those people as God's tool to be able to grow him. Three times I prayed, God, please take this thorn. Take this person. Take these people that are hurting me. Take them out of my life. Three times God said, I want you to just learn how to live with those people. I want you to grow. And Paul said, I'll gladly glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, if that exposition is accurate, Paul said, my critics were God's tool to grow me. You t- talk about a, 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 an attitude toward life. Talk about a, a healthy disposition toward people, even the people that tried to ruin him. He said, God used you in my life. And I'm a better person because of you. And I've been made strong because of your presence. And then one last thing in the last chapter, Paul said to his critics, I want you to examine yourselves because there's a very real chance that you're on your way to hell. I want want you to examine your own salvation to verify whether you really are saved. Or whether or not you're yet in your sins. Paul cared about the eternal well-being of his critics. And wanted them to make sure they were genuinely saved in light of what he had observed in their life. Well, 2 Corinthians. A very autobiographical letter. The most of all Paul's writings. It gives us the most intense view into his heart. His passions. And his attitude toward life. What a... Jewel the apostle Paul was in the 1st century and we learn so much about that from 2nd Corinthians I recommend it to you for your own personal study reading and meditation you'll learn much about suffering the gospel what you should want to see happen in other christian people and how you should have a healthy attitude toward the people who hate you and want to destroy you all wrapped up in 2nd Corinthians